0: So he falls in love with her. And let me read this text. To you. This is Genesis 29. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. But it seemed like, a f- oh, oh, isn't that right? Like, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate, right? Oh, right. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth. Like, ah, oh, like it's that, right? Doesn't it seem just, but it was just a few days. It's so poetic. False. Not true at all. Biblical scholars believe that this is not a statement of his love for her, but of a, it speaks of his own inward brokenness. In those days, it was not a dating culture. It's not like, oh, I'm going like, to give her some flowers and eventually like, she'll go get some seafood with me. Uh, one scholar says, actually it's Tim Keller. We'll count him as a scholar. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller says, Jacob is acting not like a lover, but like an addict. And Rachel is his drug of choice. We would like to insert like, our modern romantic expectations into the story, but that's not what's going on here. It seems like it's just a day for him in the same way that someone on a bender doesn't realize it's been days since they've taken a shower. He's addicted. And obviously this account of biblical marriage doesn't end up too great. After seven years, who Jacob ends up marrying, lo and behold, is not her but her sister. Which, like, that's quite a morning. Like, you wake and go, oh, Wow. Wrong sister. Kind of awkward. And then he works for seven more years, and then he marries her, and it's this huge mess. But all along, it just seems like a few days to him. Because there's an arrow pointing him saying, this is where you need to go. And it never arrives. Life outside the garden, there's always arrows. They're trying to say, hey, this is where you will find that fruit that you're looking for that will fulfill you. Because Aphrodite's arrow have always been pointing people ...in a direction. It's often towards a person... ...because we've lost the role of the divine. Now Aphrodite was... Here's a quote about her... uh, ...from antiquity. The goddess of love and beauty... ...who beguiled all... ...gods and men alike. She beguiled, she tricks everyone. Uh, so, So Aphrodite and the god of war... ...named Ares have a son... ...and his name one of their sons is named Eros. Now, Eros has a, that's Greek mythology. In Roman mythology, the equivalent of Eros is a guy named Cupid. We've all heard of Cupid, right? He's the guy that has the arrow. So he shoots the arrow and people fall in love. But if you've ever seen a picture of Cupid, there's one thing you know about this guy with his arrows. Is he's often blindfolded. Because he's blind. These arrows that get shot almost always are sending us in the wrong direction. Just like in Corinth, you walk around and see the prostitute step and create an arrow in the sand saying, follow us to the temple of Aphrodite. Now, it would probably be a little bit of a stretch to say that this is exactly what was in the back of the writer of Proverbs' mind, but I don't see my Old Testament professor in the room today, so I'm going to roll with it, okay? Aphrodite was described as one who beguiled them all, God and men's alike. She tricked them. She deceived them. The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 31 says, Beauty is fleeting and charm is deceiving, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Beauty is fleeting, charm is deceiving. Because these are arrows pointing us in a direction that never get us home. Okay, so how many of you were here yesterday and heard the story that Jonathan told about him trying to fight someone in the locker room? Remember that story? was that, like, I, I don't know how much money I would have paid to see that, but it would be a good chunk of money. Like, there's this big meathead in the locker room, and Jonathan's bullying him. Um, and, like, the only thing I wish Jonathan would have said, because this is, like the, like, the best comment to make to, like, the meathead in the gym. He's been, like, hey, it looks like you've been doing a lot of cardio. Like, are you leaning up? Like, because it, it messes, like, with the meathead's mind. My, my dad is uh, actually, he's taught his just last class yesterday at ACU. He's a psychology professor, now retired psychology professor. And he had a student do a um, uh, master's thesis on body dysmorphia, which is typically associated with eating disorders. So it's the, the psychological uh, phenomenon that's going on underneath uh, uh, anorexia or bulimia sometimes. And the paper wrote about a a specific demographic that most people don't think of. Like, often we think of eating disorders, we think of women. But there's maybe 8 to 10% that are men with an eating disorder. And this specific paper on body dysmorphia was about meatheads like the people that Jonathan were bullying. And so you look at this big meathead who's in the the weight room all the time, but it has that same question. Do Do I really have it? Am I big enough? Am I enough? And it's not just like the big meathead, it's, it's, it's many people, right? Uh, here's a quote from uh, the Minis- uh, Minnesota Star Tribune in an article entitled, uh, Jonathan sent this to me for some reason, um, or he posted about it. Uh, the title of the article is, Losing the Fight Against Dad Bodden. I did not send that to and you. <laughs> you didn't? No, I didn't. We worked in the series together. You, we shared- you sent that to me repeatedly. Go ahead. Oh. I thought I was helping. Anyway, uh, okay, so here's a story about a guy named Jonathan Stormont. No, excuse me, uh, Kirk Reed. Kirk Reed, a 58-year-old professor of French and Francophone studies. Is that a real thing? It is, is? what is that? Francophone means you love like Franks? Oh. Are you a Francophone major? we. Thank you. Okay, so anyway, that was for free. Uh, French and Francophone studies at Bates College in, uh, in Maine. He summed up how he felt about being five pounds away from his ideal weight with one word, failure. Five pounds. I've eaten seafood the last three days. That's easily five pounds I've gained. He says, Five pounds make him feel like one word, failure. In every other aspect of my life, I know what to do. I follow my little plan, I make a list, I check them off, people are happy and I move forward. This is one where it's just me and my will and it's embarrassing to me that in this aspect of my life, I don't have control. Right? of Proverbs says, beauty is fleeting. It's like there's an arrow saying, if you just get here, if you just get here, And you have a 58-year-old man who says, I feel like a failure because of five pounds. How could you get that thinking? Because you've been following an arrow to a place that you can never arrive. Beauty is fleeting and charm is deceiving. When we were in Greece, uh, we were having a meal with uh, uh, a local... And uh, she was the person who worked with the Harding University Greece campus, which is the place where we stayed. And uh, she started telling me about uh, the the political scene in Greece, which turns out it's not ideal. Uh, I I know in America we have politics perfected, but there, surprisingly, it's not perfect. And so she describes the person uh, who's in charge over there. And she's talking about this person who's uh, created a system that tax rates, according to her, were 75 percent Percent of income, seventy-five percent, and she just blames all this on the prime minister. And he does this and did this. And I was like, well, if you think he's so bad, how did he get elected? And she said, well, it's one thing. I go, well, what is it? He's really good looking. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So he got elected just because he's good looking. And she's like, yeah, basically, just because he's good looking. In a surface deep world beauty offers many an invitation to speak and to be heard uh, johnson's a preacher at highland for that reason and i, I guess you guys don't get that um, <laughs> the goddess of love and beauty who beguiles them all charm is deceiving Sean uh, seananiquis is a uh, new york times best-selling author And she wrote a book, uh, which I forgot the title of it, but it's a good one, her most recent one. And in it, she talks about uh, this pastor friend that she has. And she describes uh, what became of his life because of charm. He became so deeply skilled at making people feel loved in an instant. And along the way, he lost the ability to demonstrate actual real love to the woman and the children who were waiting at home. Making someone feel loved in an instant is so much easier than showing someone your love over and over, day in and day out. He had become a master at quick, intense emotional connection, and with each experience of it, he found himself less able to connect in the daily trudging, one after the other kinds of way. He is alone now, not living with a woman who was his wife, not living with his children. That quick love cost him enduring love, and it wasn't worth it. She says, quick love is like sugar. It rots us. It winds us up and leaves us jonesing, but it doesn't feed us. Charm is deceiving. It's like there's an arrow pointing us to a direction and we follow, but we never arrive at home. So in the ancient world, prostitution was ubiquitous all over the place. But it's only to the Corinthians does Paul ever talk about prostitution in any of his letters. Uh, Let me read this to you from 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh, but anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication, every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In the ancient world, the gods raised the ceiling on life. Life was hard. It was very challenging. And in some ways, the gods opened the ceiling up. And said, there, There's something more. There's something transcendent going on. And so as you lived in Corinth and you had this difficult life and you struggled every day. And you looked up on the mountain and you saw this imposing temple to Aphrodite. There was always a thought of, maybe if I just got up there, things would be better. And so people would make this massive hike all the way up the mountain. Thousands of people. The the stones had literally been smoothed out on the way up to the top of this mountain because people had traversed this hill so many times because there's a thought that if I just got up there, things would be better. But what does Paul say? Your body is a temple. That, That arrow inside of Corinth that's all over the place, and just go here and go there. Paul says you don't need to go up there to experience the divine. It's already in here. All those temptations we see, where we're told about beauty that is fleeting and charm that is deceiving. All those voices that say, if you just had this romance, if you just had this tryst, if you just had this experience, if you just had a relationship like that person on the other side of the fence where the grass is greener, then life would be better. Paul says, your body is a temple already. You have that transcendence inside of you. Those arrows will beguile you. Because what you need is not out there, it's already in here in you, because your body is a temple. And and maybe the difference in our culture and their culture is there is this high view of the temple of Aphrodite. And there was this spiritual experience, and it wasn't just about the pleasure, there was something transcendent to it. Uh, In our culture, it's like we've gone the exact opposite way. Where the general attitude about sex is so low that it's just something to do. It's just this casual hookup culture. We've, we've devalued sexuality. And we forget that there is something transcendent in sexuality, that there is a temple ish moment and facet to the love relationship. And so we've stripped away the transcendence in sexuality. We said, it's, ju- it's just sex. It's just, it's just you know, th- th- we're just hooking up, it's no big deal. And it's almost like we've gone the opposite direction, where Paul's saying, you don't need to go up there for transcendence. And to us, it's almost like Paul would say, guys, you're missing that there is something transcendent in sex in a marital relationship. The arrow that you need is not out there. It's right here in front of you. Now, we go up to this mountain. We hike, Jonathan and I go all the way up to the top of the mountain. We go up there and we film our spots. I do mine the right way, and then Jonathan does his also. And we get done, and so we start coming down this mountain. And like I said, so many people have traveled up this mountain. The the stones have been smoothed uh, by countless people who've stepped on them over hundreds of years. And so it's very slippery. And so I've fallen a couple times going up and down, and I I was very uh, careful how I was walking because it's very slippery. And as we're walking down, I see this woman who's fallen down on the side of the road. And so I see her and she's, you know, from me, what's your name? Bob. Bob? Okay. So, so Bob is the woman with the broken leg. She's, she's fallen right there. And I see her. And so I'm slowly walking my way towards her just like this. Now Jonathan just goes to the other side of the road and walks right past her. <laughs> Now, I know the story of the Good Samaritan, so I don't do that. And so Jonathan gets about to the back of the room like, Jonathan, hey, come back here. And he turns around and goes, hey, I have somewhere to go. I have a religious task to accomplish. I and say, and I, say, I say, no, no. And so I get a donkey, and I put Bob on it, and I say, I will pay the price of the inn. That's actually not what happened. But uh, Jonathan comes back, and uh, the best part is we had a, uh, like a guide who was the Harding University of Greece what a, like director and before that he was the strength coach for the football team at Harding University He was played quarterback there and so we're calling him He doesn't answer because he literally is reading his Bible And so we need like this. Hey, I used to be a strength coach guy to carry But he doesn't answer and so it's me and Jonathan and this couple of doctors from Russia. From Russia so me Jonathan and two Russian doctors are like carrying this woman with a broken leg down the mountain Mostly me not so much Jonathan <laughs> She's crying, she's sad, she's scared of what's going to happen. At, at some point, we're carrying her, she goes, just stop, it hurts too much. And the Russian doctors typically don't have the best bedside manner, as you would imagine. You are fine, right? Like, that's, I don't know what voice that was, it's the only one I got. But she's crying, she's scared, am I ever going to be able to walk again? And the Russian doctors, they are trying to say, hey, it's going to be okay, go to the hospital, they'll fix this. And it's a fitting metaphor. Because how many people have tried to climb the mountain following the arrows to worship the god Aphrodite and end up broken? Broken homes, broken vows, broken hearts, broken relationships, broken childhoods. But the grace in all this is that even when you're broken, God can restore you. There's this interesting text later in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 11, verse 4. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil." The veil was the flag of female virtue, status, and security. The veil had great symbolism. It reminded everyone that all free-born women, women with families to protect them, were supposed to enter adulthood already married. You wear the veil as a sign of security that you are a woman of class. A prostitute, her hair was shaved. Paul says, "If you're not going to have your head cut, go ahead and shave it off." But this is what Paul is saying is that every woman gets a head covering in the church. Which means a woman of high status, who's married in a family, has a kid, is well-respected, has her head covered. And a woman who has served as a prostitute and had sex with maybe 20 men that day, she doesn't look like a prostitute when it comes to church. She gets her head veiled. Because in the church... You might be a person who has been broken by following the Aphrodite arrows. Or you might be a woman or a man who has done the right thing. But in the church that we are all seen the same. And and we argue about, well, head coverings, what is the right thing to do? What is the wrong thing about that? And we've missed a point. This is a sacrament of grace. That no matter how many arrows you fall, think this relationship, it's going to fix it. Right? This, this is, if, if I get this, then my life would be better. In the church, everyone gets a head covering because we are all covered by God. And the reason Christians make the best atheists is because we don't worship these gods. And we call them false gods not because they don't exist. Lord knows, we know they exist. We know the ways our own life has been hurt by following the arrows. We we know the way our friends have been hurt. We know the way our childhoods have been affected by the arrows that others have fallen. These gods are false gods, not that they don't exist, but that they don't give life. Yahweh is the one true God because God gives life. So Aphrodite was a guy that deceived. Now, the next God we're going to talk about is the God of the marketplace, Hermes, who was also a God who deceived.
1: So, uh, this last July, Highland gives me a study break every year. And in July, I I come to California and I stay at the Glendale Church of Christ in their copy room. Anyway, and just read and write and all all kinds of stuff. And uh, so I'm flying in from Abilene last July and I'm reading this book and I go to the bathroom on the three-hour flight, and when I come back, and this is a good distinction between me and Luke because he opened up a story that's very different, about the same kind of thing. Um, when I come back, the guy is reading, the guy that I have not talked to at all during like these last two hours is reading the book that I was reading. And he, when I get there, he goes, what are, you, uh, what are you doing reading this book? And I go, what are you doing reading this book? <laughs> And I try to explain to him like what we're going to do. Uh, we're doing this series called Christians Make the Best Atheists. We had not yet gone to Greece. <clears throat> and um, I start telling him about the series. And then I tell him this thing that I'm going to tell you at the end. And at the end of talking about it, this guy who goes to a church in Southern California, he goes, and they're not going to fire you for saying that? <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> so I don't know exactly how this is going to land today. But I will tell you that the demographic in Southern California so far has not received it well. <coughs> so we're going to start off by talking about this god Hermes, which is the god of the ancient world of the marketplace or money. And it's interesting, the ancient world kind of can help us here because we are often, in America, we are blind to this principality and power. We think money is a neutral commodity. That's why Jesus' words sound so stark often, right? But in the ancient world, the first banks... ...were temples. They really were. They were temples to Hermes... ...the god of the marketplace... ...the god who kept things running smoothly. And the point we've been trying to make this last couple of days is... first Christians, when they were baptized... ...they would wait till a certain time... ...they would turn and they would face the west... ...and they would spit... ...and renounce those gods. Then they would, ple- they would turn and face the east... ...and they would pledge their allegiance to King Jesus... ...and then they would be baptized. And for the- then on, the rest of the world knew them hated them, resented them as atheists because they did not worship these gods. And the point we're trying to make in you know, the last couple of decades with the rise of the nuns and people who are turning away from the God of Jesus, this huge rise of post-Christian people in America, you are not turning away to, from Jesus to nothing. You're actually turning away from Jesus to things that the first Christians turned away from. And so we talked about how Reinhold Niebuhr yesterday. We talked about how Niebuhr said when people lose faith in God, they turn towards power. He just talked about Ernest Becker, this great psychologist, who said when people lose faith in God, they turn towards romantic love. That's that becomes the new idols. These are all things the ancient people worship. But Nietzsche, Nietzsche said surprisingly, it wasn't so much it was power at the root of it for Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, this famous atheist said that when people stop worshiping God, it's not just power they turn to. It's also money. So in his book, Daybreak, Nietzsche says, this is the example he gives. Um, if one man employs false weights, another burns down his house after he's insured it for a large thumb, um, a third counterfeits coins, three-quarters of the upper class indulge in permitted fraud, etc. What makes them do this? It's not because they need it, he says. ...for they're not badly off. Perhaps they can eat and drink without a care... ...but they are afflicted day and night by a fearful impatience... ...at which the slow way they are accumulating money is happening. And they love, they're afraid, and they love money. And then, look at this. Nietzsche says, what one formerly did for the sake of God... ...one now does for the sake of money. That That is to say, for the sake of that which gives us the highest feeling of power and good conscience. Okay, here's, what he, um, here's the reason I want you to hear Nietzsche, because he's writing to post-Christian. One of the most common things I hear from people who have deconverted is something like, you know what religion does? Religion makes people cruel to one another. That's why I don't like it. Okay, maybe you've seen this meme by uh, Stephen Weinberg, the Nobel laureate. He says, religion is an insult to human dignity. Without it, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things which by the way I can't categorize the world that cleanly. I don't know if you can but I don't know good people and evil people but for good people to do evil things that takes religion. Nietzsche would say no that's not true at all. In fact now that people in the in the west they're not starting wars over religion they're starting wars over money it's often said religion is the cause at the root of most wars it's not true there uh, (coughs) there's a guy named uh, philip and axelrod who wrote a three encyclopedia volume a three volume encyclopedia on the history of wars and it talks about all the wars that we know of in human history Um, there's been like 2,000 wars waged in human history that that have been um, incredibly violent and have cost lots of lives of those, of the of the 1,750-something, they categorize 123 of them in human history as having been waged over war, which is less than 7% of all wars. If you take Islam out, less than 3.23% of wars in human history have had anything to do with religion. And the last 100 years in human history, the bloodiest years of human history, almost have had nothing to do with religion, at least not religion the way we think of it. But Nietzsche would say, what people used to do for God, they have turned their affections somewhere else. And what we're trying to say is where they have turned is something the first Christians turned away from. So um, we're going to move through this quickly. If you want to know more about the God of money... I did a series, a sermon on it um, in this series at Highland. He did a sermon on it in the series at Highland. But there's Colossians 3, 1 through 11, um, where Paul is basically talking about the things that you um, used to do, but now in Christ, this is who you are. He's renouncing the idols, and he makes it really clear, clear in the middle of this. In Colossians 3, um, 5, Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Just to be clear, it's not just a bad habit. Greed is idolatry. This is why Jesus says the stark things he says. No one can serve both God and what? Don't you think he should have said something like, no one can serve God and the devil? That would make more sense, right? But Jesus knows money is not a neutral commodity. It's actually a principality and power fighting for our heart and soul. Is there anything... Uh, It causes you more anxiety in your life, causes you quicker to anger, uh, quicker to lose relationships, which is why you don't loan money to family and friends. And the amazing thing to me, and this is is why Jesus actually um, talks about how uh, wealth deceives us, the deceitfulness of wealth, it's lying to us. We're not aware, we're not hyper aware of the pull money has on us, the pull to do things that we would not do otherwise. Um, And this is where I think this series could could be helpful or this sermon could be helpful because in the ancient world, they at least had that out on the table. There's a guy named Jamie Smith who wrote a book, um, Desiring the Kingdom, and then later a more accessible version, You Are What You Love. And in it, he talks about how um, he walks you through the modern mall, but at first he doesn't tell you it's the mall. And he lets you see it with fresh eyes, what we should have been able to see all along. Modern malls were built, and this is true, as ancient cathedrals. There's a sense of timelessness. There there are these vast, huge, kind of mysterious um, chambers. There's icons, these mannequins that show you what the good life is. Jamie Smith says, Victoria's secret is that she wants your heart. Nobody's meeting you at the mall trying to tell you what to believe. Their aims are lower but they are also shaping what we actually believe. This is why Jesus says, and, and like Luke, watch out about your, uh, your uh, watch out. A person's life does not consist of the abundance that they have. Watch out. Why does Jesus have to say it like that? He doesn't say this for other sins. Watch out. Don't commit adultery. It's because nobody ever is, like, surprised that they committed adultery. Right? Like, you're not my wife. <clears throat> Uh, But this is the kind of thing, greed is almost impossible to see in the mirror. And Jesus constantly is talking against it. Because it is a principality in power. Ancient people weren't dumb to have a God for money. And maybe it would help us to reconsider it in that light. Um, Okay, so now I want to shift gears to kind of closing this out and talk about the way Christianity replaced these gods with something better. And I want to do that by telling you a couple of stories that you know and one that you might not. There's a, a philosopher named David Bentley Hart who wrote a great book called Atheist Delusions. And in that book he talks about the betrayal of Peter. It's a story that a lot of, everybody who grew up in church has heard this story, right? You have no idea how much it's changed your life and your world. So he talks about how when Peter tell, when Peter denies Jesus, the Gospels tell us about this. And then they tell us about how when Jesus looks at Peter, Peter does what? He weeps bitterly. says, for most of us, that's just like, oh yeah, that's a part of the story. He says there is nothing like that in all of ancient literature. This story is a, a, a person who is a nobody. Uh, He's a rustic fisherman who has betrayed his master who was also a nobody. There, it, this doesn't even rise to the level of Greek tragedy because there are nobodies. To hear about the interior emotional world of Peter in that moment for the first people who read it would have been a categorical mistake. It would have been like you somebody trying to tell you about the feelings that an opossum has. right? It doesn't make sense. Why would you care about that? That's literally the way the first century would have heard that. Peter's just this Galilean peasant. In the ancient world, there's an actual status people had, persona. And most of the world in the Roman world was not persona. They they did not have a persona. It meant to have a face. That's what the word persona meant. It meant that you could stand before a court and be condemned or, you know, let go but Peter has no persona Peter in that world is literally not a person he doesn't matter his life doesn't matter his emotions don't matter we 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 see in this story something that is totally revolutionary the emergence of a person we, talk, we throw this word around all the time. We talk about human rights and how everybody matters, no matter their status or race or sex or whatever. But back in the day, persona had a very limited application, and it was just for the really noble, the really elite, the really wealthy. And so nobody has a text. No other <clears throat> ancient religion has a text like this. No other ancient text is like this, telling us about the emotions of a non-person. Here's another story. One time Jesus is at the temple with 12 disciples. And this woman who has lost her husband walks into the temple and puts down her last two mites. Everybody else is giving. Nobody pays attention to her. But God saw it. And God calls his disciples over he says, hey, did you see that? She just gave everything she had. And I know it looks insignificant, but she, those two minds, gave more. What's her name? Nobody knows. But I can tell you this. That woman has funded more church capital campaigns than anybody in human history. And not just churches. Think of all the good Christian relief efforts that have been funded... By her story. Because God saw her. But not just that. God taught us to see her. Do you know that in the ancient world, dignity was not inherent? It was an acquired trait, not inherent. Do you know in the ancient world, there was this practice called exposure. And I'd love to dig into more of how common this was and how widely socially accepted this was. But basically, if a woman had a baby, they if it had any kind of defect whatsoever, or if it wasn't the right gender, they took it out and left it in the woods. And it would die. That was the way things were. No one opposed it. People had no shame about that. It was commonly accepted. They might feel bad, but they, it was culturally conditioned. It was totally acceptable until along came a group of people ...who started to pick up those babies and adopt them and name them. This is where we get godparents and Christian names from. One of those babies grew up to be a great leader in the second century of the Christian church... ...named the Shepherd of Hermas. And Shepherd of Hermas said, all babies are glorious before God. Nobody had ever thought that before. there's another story, one that you probably haven't heard. His name's Julian. Julian the Apostate, technically, is his name. Um, And I really like this guy. I need to tell you a little bit about him before we get, you understand kind of his story. But basically, here's what happened. Third century, Constantine converts Rome to Christianity. And I'd just like to point out Christianity did not need Rome as much as Rome needed Christianity. Christianity was millions and millions of people, this grassroots turning against the gods, you know, destruction of the gods. It was just picking up a head of steam. And Constantine wanted to use it to consolidate his empire and keep Rome stable. And so he did. He converts to Christianity. Everybody converts to Christianity. And ultimately, Constantine, when um, <coughs> he dies, he passes on his empire to Constantine II. Constantine II, in order to keep his throne secure, kills all of his relatives who are Julian, the apostates, parents, families, family members. Julian somehow survives. And um, when Julian, when Constantine II dies, he doesn't have any heirs. And so Julian becomes the emperor and he hates Christianity. You can see why. For all the same reasons people that I know hate Christianity. Hypocrites. Look what you did in the name of God. Look what you did with, you know, all he hates Christianity, but it's not just that he hates Christianity, and this is one of the reasons I like Julian so much. It's also because he has this ache for the ancient religions that he heard about. You know, it, it had been a couple of generations removed from him, or a generation removed, but he'd heard the stories about the way things used to be when the Temple of Zeus was really thriving. And so he outlaws Christianity and he tries to revive these old religions and and so at one point there's this story about how he uh, has always imagined the parade of the festival of Zeus and he gets that um, he he has that held and he goes to the temple expecting thousands and thousands of people to show up and instead it's just this old priest and him and a goose that they're going to have to sacrifice And he's so mad. He's so mad because even though he has made Christianity illegal, people are still flocking to it and walking away from the old religions. And so he sits down and he writes a letter to all these priests of these ancient religions. And in this letter, Julian the Apostate says this. Not that. Atheism, the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through this loving service rendered to strangers and throughout their care for the burial of the dead. Now, I want you to see this. What he's saying here is he's, he's trying to diagnose the problem of why people aren't coming back to the pagan religions. And he says, here's what they've done. Here's what we've got to change. He said, they are, atheists are spreading because they care for the, um, you know, they, they care for people and they help people bury their dead. It is a scandal. He says this is an enemy to the Christian faith. It's a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, Christians, care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Here's what I want you to see. The idea that what the pagan priests needed to do in order to be good as a a religion, the idea... That what a good religion would actually be doing was helping the poor, the least of these, the weakest. That is a Christian idea. And while Julian may hate Christianity, he has no idea how deeply Christian his imagination has already become. And that is what we mean when we say Christians make the best atheists. The world is like this now. And I'm glad the world is like this now. I'm glad that people who don't believe in God often are humanitarian and care about other people. Um, I I honestly believe it's because Christians make the best atheists. For now. Atheists that I know are some of the most humanitarian people that I know who care about good things, Jesus kinds of things. But eventually, and this is a concern that I have, Nietzsche is going to catch up with us. Because Nietzsche's searing point that cuts throughout history is, if you say, I'm not a Christian, but I don't think the wealthy or the strong should oppress the poor and the weak, stop lying to yourself. You're a Christian. You care about very Christian things. There's no reason, No, without, he said the way Nietzsche says it, is without Christian metaphysics, Christian ethics don't work. In other words, if God did not raise Jesus from the dead, why should I not do whatever I want? If God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then, you know, better than that, let's say it like this. If God did not raise Jesus from the dead, the best alternative narrative is that the strong need to keep getting stronger because that's what's going to make our society stronger. And Nietzsche's got some great points that we have to really deal with. So a couple of years ago on the Huffington Post, I saw this. Um, it's this homeless man, and he had put up this, and I thought, first off, well done, sir. This is genius. We asked, you know, which religion cares the most about the homeless and different bowls with different names on there? And I just loved this idea. And as you can see, at the time the picture was taken, the atheist had the most pictures or the most uh, uh, money in there. And this is this is my point. Like this is kind of a, a this is Julian the Apostate. Julian the Apostate would say, "Yeah, this is what you this is what this is what we need to do. This is what it means to be a good person, to be a good human being, and Nietzsche's point is for now. But ultimately, the God who ra- the if that God who raised Jesus from the dead doesn't exist, then neither does this. There's another philosopher named Jürgen Habermas, who's an atheist and philosopher, and this was quoted in the Washington Post a couple of years ago. He said, Christianity and nothing else is the ultimate foundation of liberty, conscience, human rights, and democracy, the benchmarks of Western civilization. To this day, we have no other options than Christianity. We continue to nourish ourselves from this source. Everything else is just post-modern chatter. You want to know why Julian thought this is the right thing to do, why people that you care about who don't believe in God think this is the right thing to do, why they will spend their lives in the Peace Corps, why they will spend their lives working for humanitarian relief, it's because 2,000 years ago, the first Christians turned and faced the West and spit and renounced the devil and his minions. They renounced those gods and all the things that came along with them. Christianity was an incredibly creative force. For 2,000 years, there has not been a revolution since then that matches or even gets close to what happened when God raised Jesus from the dead on Easter morning. But it is not just a creative force. It was also a destructive one. And we should praise them as much for that as we do the first. Because there are many things that are worthy of destruction. So, here's what my friend said would get me fired. To me, and to Luke, these are not ideas about people. What we're trying to do in the, what we tried to do in this series, and what we're trying to do in this, is just give you some resources to think through this in life about like, well, you can't not believe in things, right? That's not an option to check off. And be very, very cautious with telling yourself what, what um, philosopher Charles Taylor calls a subtraction story. Like, I used to believe in elves and fairies and Jesus and those kind of things. But no, I'm a modern enlightened person and I don't believe. It. No, no, you've actually taken several significant leaps of faith you have, um, that, that require um, you accepting things that you cannot know that nobody can know. Uh, no matter what position you take when it comes to faith. There's no option of certainty, right? And you need to be careful in what it is that you decide to put your faith into. So just a couple of things and then we're done. If I was to dedicate this series to somebody, it would be to this one guy that I grew up with, one of my best friends. We went to college together. We were homeschooled together together. And ultimately, ten years ago, he slowly started to walk away from the Christian faith. And when I was finishing this series up, I sat down with him, and I shared every bit of it. I gave it my best shot. Like, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And ultimately, he said, Jonathan, I'm fine with my life right now. And it dawned on me. The big question is, do you want to believe in God? Because there's a difference between I don't believe in God and I don't want to believe in God. And the Christian faith, for those of us who are struggling with faith, has said, and this is true, this is in the Christian tradition, if you want to believe, <laughs> that's enough. So... A hundred years ago, this guy named G.K. Chesterton is uh, writing in what is fast becoming post-Christian England. And G.K. Chesterton is one of these guys who had grown up around Christianity, but not very interested in it. He had a little bit of experience in his childhood, but ultimately he comes back to the Christian faith. And G.K. Chesterton, when he's writing to people like you and me, and people like you and me know who have walked away from faith, who have this real sense of of doubt and and, questioning, and they don't believe in God, but they miss him. G.K. Chesterton said the reason that he came back in his book, Orthodoxy, he said that when Jesus was dying on the cross, when Jesus cries out to God, one of the things that drew him back to the Christian faith was that, The Christian faith is the only one in which for one brief instance, God himself was an atheist. And I don't know what that does to you, but the people that I've, in my life, who have walked away from faith or had begun the process of walking away from faith, I've shared that, I can't tell you, hundreds of times with those people and for some of them they're indifferent some of them it makes them a little angry but there's a significant group of people who that touches them because even in that even in that place where you wish you could believe you you want to believe in things like justice and value and beauty and that the dignity of the least of these matters and you want your grandkids to believe that even in that place where you can't get past the what if and the physics and I don't understand how that would happen and what about evolution and creation even in that place of wrestling with all that and not sure not knowing if you want to believe it's enough and even in that place of great doubt God who became fully human went there too. May we trust in that God well. Let's pray. God, thank you for the people who you have gathered for this harbor. Thank you for this great harbor. Thank you for getting to do this with Luke. I pray that you would bless this in our churches and in our families and our friendships and help it to build empathy and sympathy and um, conversation starters with the people that we care about Um, Help us, help it to remind us of the idolatry in our own life and inspire us by the tenacity of the first Christians and the way they bravely went after and battled sin wherever they saw it in their own hearts. God, help us to be like them. Help us to trust you the way they did. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. you're dismissed.